Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Well, we are glad that Becky Prado is well. And amen. Yeah, yeah, the Lord healed her. It's good to see some of our family here who has been absent, who have been absent, I should say. And Moriel Haller was here today on violin. We thank you, orchestra. Hope you heard that on the way out. It's a joy. It's kind of fun to be a smaller group, actually. I mean, I like more people, of course. It's a contradiction in a way, but it's so nice to be able to relate to people, see people. Chaz, we're welcoming you home. Stand up there, Chaz. It won't be hard to see you. He's grown about two or three inches, looks like. He's been off to the Army, serving in the Armed Forces. He enlisted in the Army last... When was it, actually? Okay, last August. And we had two other young men who were here last evening, both of whom are in the military. Many of you know Wyatt Dorman. Wyatt is in special services in the United States Army. He'll be deployed to Germany soon. He's in the intelligence section, and he's learning a language that's not an easy language to learn, Russian, and he's going to be serving our country in that way. And then maybe as soon as tomorrow, A.J. Lynn will be going to basic training in the United States Marines. So we have a lot of our young men who are answering the call to serve our country, and we're grateful for that. And then while we're a family, we're kind of family today, I want to take note of an award that came unexpectedly to one of our members in our church, John Sherman, a medical doctor in our community, very active in our church. He and Sue are the founders of Christian Hands in Action, a mission outreach. And he was surprised when he received word that he had been awarded Humanitarian of the Year by Baylor Medical School. And so we're grateful for that. John, congratulations. Sue should get at least half of that award, by the way. A veteran Christian in West Texas spoke to his pastor this very terse, yet pithy statement. He said, Pastor, the problem with the Christian life is that it is so daily. As we stand on the threshold of a new year, how are we to overcome the dailiness of the Christian life? Maybe you wonder what that means. I do to a degree. I think I understood what this Texan said. I believe he was basically indicating that it's easy for the Christian life to disintegrate into a religious practice rather than a relational practice with the Lord. And what instructions are we given? That's what we're going to look at today as we think about entering the new year and not being routine about being a believer in Christ. What instructions are we given in the Bible for maintaining and growing our walk with the Lord? The word that stood out to me as I was pondering this was the word daily. I began to think about the word daily. And in my memory bank, I drew up several statements about things which we are to do daily in order to grow in our walk with the Lord. The first of which is we must study the scriptures daily. This is paramount. In Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, this is what we hear Luke write about Paul and his traveling companions. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That is, the things which Paul and his companions taught about Jesus being the Messiah and why he came. 
And we know these people didn't just start examining the scriptures that moment. Their habit was to examine the word of God every day. And so are we. I recall what the Bible says about Jeremiah. He says, I found your word and I ate it. And it became to me the joy and delight of my heart. Do you ever have any experience like that with regard to the Bible? Do you treasure the word of God? Next to our relationship to God through Jesus Christ, I would suggest to you that the greatest gift we have is the Bible because it's the mind and heart of God communicated to us in a form that we can understand. My heart was warmed as we sang the song about ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open heart to receive the word that you want to impart to us. We come to that moment today as we gather together in worship. We open the Bible and we look for direction, instruction, correction, all those things which are necessary for us to not fall into a humdrum, ho-hum kind of relationship with the Lord. But more importantly, I'm going to say to you today that we have the opportunity every day to open the Bible. And we do a great disservice to ourselves and we impair our own walk with the Lord, if we do not bring our hearts in humility before God with a heart to hear what the Lord might have to say to us. In the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon writes these words. He says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. When I open the Bible, and you do too, we are opening it with the idea not of telling God stuff, but listening to Him. And we have this incredible, unparalleled privilege to have God speak to us from the Bible in language that we understand. He speaks to our hearts. And in order for us to have the kind of daily walk with Christ that will really change us and change the environment in which we live, we must bring ourselves under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit every day, trusting Him to speak to us. As we read from Exodus 16, this great story of how God was patient with his people. And he listened to their complaining and grumbling, and he gave them food to eat. Now think about this. There were 603,550 males the age of 20 or more who were counted when the children walked out of that nation, the children of Israel. 603,000. Let's say half of those men were married, probably more, but let's just say half. That jumps the number up to about a million. And then undoubtedly, those who were married had children. We don't know how many. We know the family of Moses. He was one of three children. So we see maybe another half million minimum problem. Million and a half to two million people. That's a lot of people to feed, isn't it? And God did feed them. They were complaining about wishing they had been left in Egypt by the flesh pots so they could eat all the rich foods there. And they were complaining that Moses and Aaron had led them out of Egypt into the wilderness to die of starvation. But then God gave them this strange kind of food they'd never seen before. And if we read elsewhere in the Old Testament, we would discover that it was tasty. It had the flavor of honey, and it came down every day. And what the instructions were to all those people is gather enough for what it takes to feed you, your family, and no more. And eat it all up. And then the next day, you'll do the same thing. It took a lot of faith on their part to do that, didn't it? And if they gathered more than they required, 
what happened, exactly what God warned them would happen and told them not to do too much, then it would stink and maggots really is what would get in them. That's pretty gross even to think about, isn't it? Well, what that says to us, every day the Lord calls us to come to be with Him. I would suggest to start the day out feeding ourselves on what He's provided in the Word of God. And I can't say you need to read X number of passages of Scripture every day. I can't say that if you're really spiritual, you're going to read the whole Bible in 2021. It's not about how much you read. It's how you read it with expectation and with a commitment to take what you learn from the Lord, make adjustments in your life, and then follow Him based upon what He teaches you. And the Bible really never grows old, does it? I've been reading the Bible for all of my adult life, and I never grow tired of reading the Word of God. It has the capacity to encourage us, but also it has the capacity to change our hearts and to inspire us, give us the help we need for living the Christian life. This is the most fundamental thing you and I can do in order to take care that our Christian walk does not become daily, to get rid of the dailiness and the routineness that is associated with some people's walk with the Lord. Here's the second thing, and this won't come as a surprise to you any more than the first did, but it's to pray daily. Let's go to what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer in the book of Matthew, chapter 6. And we're going to begin with verse 7, reading the introductory paragraph, comment a bit on that, but then look at the composition of what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer, actually. It was given to the disciples, and we know this because of what the Scripture says, but Jesus didn't need to ask for forgiveness of his debts. The real Lord's Prayer, scholars say, is found in John 17. But let's look at verse 7 of Matthew 6. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So our praying if it's anything at all, is not to be just the heaping up of a lot of words. This prayer that Jesus gives is a prayer that's really short. It could be prayed in less than a minute, but it's packed with truth. And look what Jesus begins saying before he really gives the content of the prayer. Verse 9, pray then in this way. Now, what we gather from that is this prayer is a model prayer. And what I mean by that, it's a prayer that gives us a pattern to follow in our praying. Not to just pray these words in rote fashion. We can do that, and there's some value in that. Of course, if we think about what we're saying and don't just spill off what we've memorized and known since childhood. But it's a pattern of praying. Look at the way in which Jesus begins teaching us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We need to recognize that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Our God is the King of the universe. He is the creator of everything. And we are coming before a holy God. Guard you steps when you go to the house of God. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do. So when we come before the Lord, we come humbly before the Lord and we hallow His name. What does hallow mean? Well, the word actually in the original language is the word that's translated most often in the New Testament by our English term sanctify are sanctified, which means set apart as holy. So we set apart as holy the name of God. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I would be remiss if I didn't pause just a moment and talk about the word Father. The word Father, as it relates to God, is mentioned very rarely in the Old Testament, but it is mentioned, but it's developed fully in the New Testament. And the word Father, Jesus' language in his own home would not have been Hebrew. It would have been a sister language, Aramaic, and Aramaic was the language that became the unofficial official language of the Hebrew people during the time of the exile in Babylon. And the word for father would be Abba. When Jesus was speaking to his apostles in that language, Aramaic, and he was teaching how to address God, he teaches the importance of having that intimate relationship with the father. It's not a cold, sterile kind of relationship. It's a relational kind of word, Abba is, like Dada. It was the first word that would come out of a baby's mouth when the baby began to speak to a parent. Abba would be the word. So our God is intimate, but our God is also infinite. And we have that interesting combination the awesome combination of a God who is accessible to us, but also a God who is to be treated with fear and reverence. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, as we pray to the Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mike Baker and I were talking today before the worship service began, and we were talking about how the kingdom of God is transnational. It's transgenerational. The kingdom of God is something that knows no human boundaries. And we were talking about some acquaintances that we have in Africa and acquaintances we have in India, people whom we have been privileged to come to know as brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ all over the world. It's amazing what God has done in building his kingdom. And his kingdom is being built everywhere on the place of the earth today. Every nation has some reference to Christianity in its population. And we praise God for that. And we pray that that kingdom of God will come. We need to pray this more fervently, I think. Your kingdom come in El Paso as it is in heaven. There's more room from people in the body of Christ in El Paso. And we, as we enter 2021, we need to petition the Lord and cry out to the Lord, Lord, use us as one expression of your church to be outreaching and ministering to people. Help us to have eyes to see people who are hungry for the gospel, are hungry for meaning in life, hungry for purpose, hungry for forgiveness. Lord, show us. Help us to be loving and caring for such people and minister to them the gospel of Jesus Christ so that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Then, after having petitioned God for God's glory, he turns his attention in the teaching of this prayer to the legitimacy, if not the incumbency, of our petitioning God on our own behalf. Give us this day, our daily bread. Obviously, this prayer was to be prayed every day because you needed daily bread. We do need it. We did need it. We will need it. And what draws attention to me at this point when I look at this is my research has shown that the word daily is a word that was found and has been found by archaeologists in the region around Jerusalem. And it was part of a, what you'd call a shopping list every day. And many of you have been to the Middle East, maybe you lived there for a while. And you know, in the Middle East and other parts of the world besides the US, there are markets where people go every day to get their daily food. Isn't that right? In this day and time, there was no way for refrigeration. There was a way for food being preserved through salting it and that sort of thing, but things would not last long. And so you needed to go every day. And this had a connection 
also to the general population of Israel. By and large, and Jesus' family was such a family, more likely than not, the composition of the population of Israel was peasantry, people who lived as day laborers. And the amount of money that a person would give that day for a day's work would be taken, and it would be taken to the market to buy. So this would also indicate, give me a job so I can go and work and so I can feed myself and my family. And then the next verse, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Trespasses, some of the translations say. And this, of course, has to do with sin in our lives. We confess the, our sin. We need to ask the Lord, search me, O God, and try my heart. And show me areas of my life where I have sinned against you. Sometimes we sin and we're not even conscious of it at the moment. But when we come to the Word of God and we open the Bible and we read the Word of God, this again begs us to read Scripture so we can be in the most up-to-date relationship with Jesus as possible for us. And we say, Lord, show us so we can come and we can confess our sin. Not flippantly, not casually, sincerely confess our sin. And you forgive us those sins, our debts. And then verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation. Some of the translations actually translate the word temptation, trial, or trials. And that is a legitimate translation of the word, by the way. But deliver us from the evil one. This is a petition also. So let's look and deal with the pattern here. What is the pattern for our daily praying? We come and we praise God, do we not? We come and we recognize the intimacy we have for, with him. We expect for him to speak to us as a father would speak to his children. And we want to revere him and to fear him as a child has respect for a father. We pray for the extension of his kingdom, the growth of his kingdom on earth. And then we have petition. We petition for ourselves. But it strikes me as being very important when we get to verse 6. Give us, that's plural. Forgive us, that also is a plural pronoun. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are to pray for each other, aren't we? This is the very important part of praying intercessory prayer. In 1 Samuel 12, 21, the prophet Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And those to whom he addressed that were people who were in rebellion against him. He was the judge of Israel, and they said, we want a king. We're tired of being judged by Samuel. But his response could have been one of anger and rejection of those people because he would have felt the sting of their not wanting to have him as their leader anymore. But he prayed for them. We have a great responsibility to pray for each other. We're to pray daily. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Verse 17, the scripture says, pray without ceasing. Has that ever puzzled you a little bit? Pray without ceasing. How do I do that? Well, you pray without ceasing. You can, I can talk and pray at the same time. That's the only gift I have, I think. <laughs> but you can do it, can't you? Have you ever been in conversation with someone and the Lord has put it on your heart to pray for that person if you're, as you're talking? Of course we have that capacity. And we're to pray. And the idea without ceasing really means whenever the opportunity arises, pray. And we're always able to do that. And Paul writes in Romans 12, 12, the last part, be devoted to prayer. It should be our heart to daily pray. To be devoted means it's 
something that you're focused on, not occasionally, but all the time, isn't it? We're to pray for each other in the body of Christ. We're to pray for people who do not know Jesus. We're to be men and women who are committed to not be daily in our Christian walk in the sense of being routine, but to pray with a heart of praise and petition to the Lord. So here's the third thing that we're to do daily. And this is just a suggestive list, of course. But if we grasp these things, we will be on our way to not having a humdrum relationship to God. We're to encourage one another daily. If you were to turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says, Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that your hearts may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another daily. We have been given this assignment to encourage each other. What is the means of such encouragement? Well, it's the Word of God. In Romans 15, 4, Paul writes... Whatever was written in earlier times was written for your instruction so that perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, you might have hope. Where does hope come from? We can be encouraging in the sense that we affirm people, but we want to leave more than just mere affirmation with people, don't we? We want to give them words from the Word of God which has transforming power in their lives. And we find those words in Scripture when we spend time alone with God, remembering what is said in Isaiah chapter 50, pertaining to the Messiah, actually, but it's pertaining to us too because of our association with Jesus Christ. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of a disciple so that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. Morning by morning he wakens me. How frequently does he awaken you? Every morning. And why does he awaken us in the morning? He awakens us so that we will receive what we need for that day, for the living of the walk with Christ, but also what we will be able to impart to other people to help encourage them. The Word of God is so powerful in our own life and development, but it can be equally powerful to help others who need a hand along, who need encouragement in their lives. Look at that verse one more time. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. What do you think that last little phrase means? As long as it is called today. Think about that for just a moment. The Lord, when He impresses me to share something with a brother or a sister or a stranger for that matter from God's Word, and I fail to do it, I lose the opportunity. God has put me in connection, not because I'm a preacher, but because I'm a child of God. He puts me in contact with people and he wants me to be able, I don't have to force anything. Sometimes you don't have anything to say. But many times you have an opportunity. People are so discouraged. Everywhere you go, you're going to run into discouraged people. And the best way to encourage them is to be pleasant toward them, of course, and really care about them. But take what God has taught you and share it with them. And the result will be that they will be encouraged and be able to go forward. Later in the book of Hebrews, the 10th chapter, in the 24th and 25th verses, the God says, let us consider how we may stir one another up or stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but let us encourage one another and get this, and all the more as you see the day approaching. approaching. Now, what day might that be? It's the day of the Lord. It's the second coming of Jesus. I have no idea when Christ is coming back, but he's coming soon. 
Jesus himself said, I know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man will return. The Father is the one who knows that. He has assigned a day. We don't know when it is. The signs of the time would maybe indicate we're getting closer. We know we're getting closer than we were yesterday, but it seems becoming more and more imminent for us. So it, it should impress us to encourage each other, to encourage each other, because when those times get closer, things are going to get tougher for us who know the Lord. And we know we will suffer persecution. That's what the Bible says. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of Christ, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what the Bible says. And we are people who have the capacity to encourage others in such situations. William James, who was a psychologist, probably purported to be a nominal Christian. I'm not sure he really was, but he makes this statement, which I believe is a solid statement, even though I'm not sure about where he stood with the Lord. The most basic principle in human nature is the desire to be appreciated. It is true, isn't it? People want to be encouraged. And then Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was a transcendentalist, not a Christian, he was a Unitarian, but he has some things to say that were accurate too. And here's one of them. I never met a man, or never meet a man actually. It was in the present tense. I never meet a man who is not in some way superior to me. Every person I meet, I should have an attitude of humility, not condescending toward the person, but truly understanding this man, this woman, is at least created in the image of God. And is a person, if a Christian, a true believer in Jesus, is one in whom Jesus himself dwells. And if something about that person turns me off, then I still have the opportunity to see Christ in him and respond to the Christ in her when given the opportunity. Mahatma Gandhi, a Hindu, a man who said, if it were not for the Christians, I would become a follower of Jesus Christ. And it, it, it's sort of funny, but really not funny when you think about it. He was ministered to greatly by a great Christian missionary, E. Stanley Jones, and they were friends. And he never came to know Jesus as far as we know. We know he was assassinated. And he said that no one that he ever met was a worthless person. Now, he lived in an age and in a time in India where there was this caste system. When I visited India, I saw a statue in a village, and it was an impressive statue. It was not an idol. It was a statue of a man dressed in 20th century garb, and it had a plate under it explaining this monument, if you will. And I read it, and it was a statue of the man who wrote the Constitution of India. And I told my host that I had seen that and asked him about this man. He said, that man came from the lowest caste in India. And I said, really? He said, yes. And I said, how was he accepted by the other castes? He said he was never accepted, really, except by his caste. And I'm going to say that the most wicked thing I think I've seen in my life, really, and my travels are not that extensive, but was that caste system where people are relegated to a level of Impovering, impoverishing life, but also degrading life simply because of the family into which they are born. That's just not right, is it? And every person we see needs encouragement, no matter who they might be. We're to love people as Christ loved us. I remember when Jesus saw Simon Peter for the first time, he was known as 
Simon then, or Simeon is what his Hebrew name would have been. Simeon, Simon. And he said, you are Simon. Jesus says this to him. You are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas. That's Aramaic for Peter. You'll become a rock. And this man, we know he was not rock-like. He was unstable in his personality. He was unpredictable. And that kind of attitude followed him even after he came to the Lord. But he was a changed man, wasn't he? He was a man who was used mightily of God. And I suggest to you, it began that day when he first saw Christ and Christ saw not who he was, but who he could become. And we who know Christ, we can be used by God and Jesus can minister to the people to us to help people move past where they are through Jesus Christ coming into their lives and changing them. And here's the last thing that we're to do daily and it's to do what Paul said about himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. He said, I die daily. What did he mean? He meant that he took seriously what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The cross was an instrument of horrible humiliation but an even more horrible death. According to the records of ancient historians, in the Roman world at least, there were only three people recorded to have been crucified who survived, came down alive. Two of those people died. Only one did not because of the horrors of that crucifixion. But we know that when Christ calls us to follow him and we take up the call to be followers of Jesus, then we must die to ourselves, really. We need to die to our ambition. Now, I'm going to address the male part of the population here today. This is primarily, I think, and I, I say this as a male. I, I don't know how women think, but I do know how I think and I know how men think to a great extent. And we have a problem with ambition. We want to be somebody and we are competitive and we're willing to do whatever it takes to make it to the top of the heap. Now, not everybody's as much that way as some of the people in the room, but I know I'm in that category. And I was challenged early in my walk with Christ from Jeremiah 45, 5, where Jeremiah the prophet says to his understudy, Baruch, he says, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Because God is going to deal harshly with all flesh. Anybody who is that driven to the expense of other people and actually to the degree that that person's drivenness and ambition takes away from the glory of God. We are to die to our ambition. Now, I want to say this. We must make a distinction between ambition and aspiration. And I'm doing a hair-splitting preacher deal here a little bit. But I want to explain what I mean by the word aspiration. We should aspire to please God, to have as our ambition, as we are told Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, we make it our ambition to please God. That's what we aspire to, to please God. And there is nothing wrong with that. We should, we're not in a race to prove who the greatest Christian is. We are in a walk with the Lord that will help him be more and more prominent in our sphere of influence. And so we must be done with having our own way, being vainly ambitious, selfishly ambitious is the way Paul speaks of it in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. We are to die to our ambition. We are also to die to others' approval of us. 
Go to John chapter 10. We're going to look at a couple of verses, statements of the gospel writer. John in chapter 10, verses 42 and 43. You know what? It's chapter 12. I wrote the wrong thing in my notes. I thought, there's something wrong there. It's chapter 12. Verses 42 and 43. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. That would be Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for they fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. They'd be excommunicated. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And the word approval there is glory, really. They love the glory of others rather than the glory of God. We have a tendency to want to be glorified by men, don't we? In the book of Proverbs, there are many things that relate to this concern that I have about myself and I hope you have about yourself, whether you're male or female. And these verses go like this. The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold. Places where ore that would have silver or gold in it, hopefully by the miner who found those, would be smelted in the fire of the crucible for the silver and the heated furnace for the gold. Crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, but a man or a person really is tested by the praise he receives I learned that verse probably 30 years ago at least, maybe longer, because I've wrestled with this desire to be approved by people most of my life. And I pondered it as I meditated on it, and what I discovered was there's something on the surface that's very clear. We're tested if we get the praise of men. It's a temptation in a way, and we need to be careful that we don't lead our brothers and sisters into temptation by praising them too much. To be appreciative of them, yes, in genuineness. But what I discovered was, in my own life, my, I was tested more when I didn't get some kind of praise, when I thought I should have gotten it. And that was really telling to me, that I lived too much for the praise of other people instead of wanting the Lord to be glorified through my life. In that same chapter in Proverbs, the Bible says, if you have been foolish, exalting yourself, put your hand over your mouth. So if you see me walking around anytime, I do it. One time's too many, but I do it too often. And then a last thing that's said in the Proverbs in this regard, let another man praise you and not your own lips. Don't praise yourself. Don't brag. Men, we're bad about it. I, I think about when I get with some of my high school buddies, our college buddies, and we're talking about the good old days. You know what I mean, men? And they're real old. They're real old days. <laughs> It's the same stories over and over again. And when men are just talking, they may not be long-standing friends. They just talk together. I'm talking about Christian men or men, period. One will tell one story about something that he accomplished, and then before it's finished, somebody's already thinking, well, I've got one that'll probably top that one. You know what I mean, guys? It's pretty bad. But we need to understand we don't need the affirmation of another human being. We do, we need encouragement. We already established that. But we, we want to let God get the honor. And when we crave the approval of other people, it's an indication that we really don't know our sonship or daughtership in the Lord. Because he loves us. He, he has set, set us apart to be his children. 
Here's the last area that I'm going to mention where we need to die daily. It's in the area of our apprehensions, our fears. And many of you perhaps have listened to what I've talked about today and thought, well, this is all well and good. I believe it's right to search the scriptures daily. I believe it's right to pray daily. I believe it's right to encourage one another daily. And I believe I'm to die daily, but I still have some apprehension about whether I can do that. I'm not sure I'm equipped for that. Well, understand this. You don't have it in your own natural power to do this. The only way we can live the Christian life as it was intended is to follow Jesus. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. I'm to have Christ at the center of my life, thinking about him, using him as the point of reference for relationships and actions, things that I say, things that I think. And when we go back to the word of God, searching the scripture daily. I thought about Colossians chapter 3, I believe it is, where Paul says, set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. Who's above? Well, the Lord is, right? And also the word of God is above. And in 1 Corinthians, the Bible says, we have the mind of Christ we get it when we study the Word daily and we learn it and we learn it so we can walk with Christ throughout the day. We have the power in the person of the Holy Spirit. Once again, in Colossians 1, the Bible says in the 27th verse, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ lives in you if you know Him. And he is the one who empowers you and me. If we are going to glorify the God, he's the one who gives us the power to do that. We can't do it on our own. Left to ourselves, we will always trend toward glorifying ourselves. And I can't tell you how many times in my life I've said to the Lord, Lord, I just can't do that. And the answer is always the same. I know you can't do that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what he says to me and to everybody else who knows him. But through me, you can do anything I give you to do. And it's amazing when Paul went to Corinth. You remember when he went to Corinth? I can't imagine Paul being afraid of anything. He comes across as the most self-confident Christian I've ever read about. But he came, he says, when I came to you, I came to you in fear and trembling but this happened so that your faith might not rest upon the wisdom of man, but upon God. He's standing before these Corinthians preaching the gospel for the first time, and he's shaking like a leaf. But God used it because it was not Paul. It was the Spirit of God communicating the truth of God through the Word of God as he preached the gospel. So you don't have to be self-assured. In fact, that's the kiss of death. You have to be Christ-dependent. And when we are such people, the apprehension will go away as we trust in the Lord. Many people are apprehensive about death. There's probably more than one person here today who is apprehensive about dying. Well, I just remember something that's already been said in this worship service, not in this message, but earlier. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ died on the cross and was punished for your sin, all of it, not just some of it, all of it, all the sins you've ever committed, Christ died for. All that you will commit in the future, Christ died for. When he did that, he opened the door for you to receive eternal life.
by receiving him. But as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who trust in him. And when you receive Jesus Christ, the Bible says this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. It's a gift. You do not earn nor deserve it. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And the testimony is this. God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. Listen carefully. He who has the son of God has life. And actually it's the life. It's, there are a lot of facsimiles of life. People are trying to sell life all over the place. But there's only one true life. It's the person of Jesus Christ. But he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that you have eternal life? Would you bow your head? If you'd like to know for sure, then turn your heart over to Christ today. Just say to the Lord, Lord Jesus, I have lived for myself. I have ignored you. I am so sorry, Lord, for not embracing you as my Savior. Thank you for dying for my sins, Lord. Thank you. I ask you forgiveness for that. But also ask forgiveness for not recognizing you as my master. Please let me be your servant, Lord, and your follower for the rest of this life and into eternity. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you.